Good morning. Um, <clears throat> I will say uh, that 9 o'clock had a little more energy than you guys at this point. Um, and so not that it's a competition, but I just want to let you know that in case you're competitive. Um, but uh, we're going to be continuing our uh, march through the gospel of the book of Mark. Uh, and so we're in chapter 6, looking at verses 45 to 56, and we will get there in just a moment. Uh, but while you're turning there, I do want to just pray for our time together. I believe that this is a, a very familiar text, uh, but also a very powerful one, and some things that we really desperately and need to get out of this as we continue to discover uh, really the, the questions that the book of Mark is asking and answering, and that's who is Jesus and what does he come to do? Uh, and then the thing that Mark answers with that is how does that immediately affect everything that we are, everything that we say, everything that we think, every way that we process, the way that we view our, our resources, the way that we view our time, how do we have an identity that is so set free that it is reflected in everything that we do as revealing freedom and liberty and joy despite our circumstances and everything that we are. Because we often talk about how who we are determines what we do. And so if we know who Jesus is and what he has done and how that affects us, then how do we begin to walk in that liberty and freedom? And that's really what Mark is talking about. I think there's a, just a really encouraging and challenging uh, just point for us some things for us to look at in this text uh, that are just so powerful for us. And so let's pray together uh, before we jump in. God, thank you so much for the time that we have to, to gather together and to worship you. Um, Lord, I'm, I'm thankful. I pray that we would never take these opportunities for granted. And Lord, this morning as we open your word to a familiar passage where you walk on water and you calm the storm, God, I pray that you would just allow us uh, to internalize the truths of what you are revealing to your disciples and ultimately all the way down to us and, and what we are revealing as we live our lives where you have us, where we live and where we work and where we play to reveal the goodness of who you are. And God, I just pray, uh, Father, there's, there's no way that I can possibly um, just touch, or talk about, understand every single thing that people are going through in this room. I don't know all the things that people are praying through, that are worried about, that are anxious about, that, that they're seeking you for, that they're desperately seeking answers for. And God, I don't know how I could possibly practically speak to each of those things this morning. But God, we know that your word is living and active, and I pray that that reality would draw us to your truth this morning, and that you would speak to us directly where we are in the midst of everything that we might be going through today. God, I pray that it would be encouraging, and I pray that it would be challenging. I pray that it would be transforming. Would you just reveal yourself in your grace and speak to us this morning, Father, in your name. Amen. Uh, here's what I want to do this morning. I, I want us to look at this text, which, again, even if you have not grown up in church, you're probably familiar with this text of Jesus walking on water. You've at least heard of that. Uh, and maybe you've questioned it and doubted it, and that's one of the reasons you're like, that's crazy. Um, or maybe you've heard a hundred sermons uh, following this text. And so uh, what I really want us to do this morning is, is not only to see what God is saying to us in the text, to the disciples, because I believe that there's something really powerful in that that we'll see in just a moment. But I also want to give us seven things, seven realities of God in every single one of the things that we're going through in life. Every storm that we might face, every trial that we might face, every suffering that we might have to go through, everything in life, I want us to understand seven things, and, and we'll go at them at different speeds, so don't be nervous if number one's a little longer than number six, okay? Um, but I want us to see these seven things, just be really practical this morning, because Jesus is showing us something. And as Jesus came in, and we just talked about what Mark is trying to answer with his gospel, when Jesus comes in Mark chapter 1, verse 1, he says that he is revealing the good news, that he is himself the good news, that everything that we've ever longed for, everything we're looking for, everything we're seeking in life, the purpose, the meaning, the joy, the peace, the rest, everything is found in him and him alone. He is the good news. He is what we are seeking. 
And when we do find ourselves in him, then we find something that surpasses all circumstances. And we determine that our circumstances do not determine our joy, that our life is not determined by our suffering, but that there is something that determines who we are despite the good things and the bad things, despite the sufferings and the times of calm in our lives, that there is a peace and a joy that surpasses all of that because of who we are that allows us to then begin to live in every circumstance and situation as the the one that we are, the child of God who is free to live the life that we were created to live of revealing who we are in him and not being a people who have to live a life of seeking what we are not. And Jesus continues to reveal himself in this way that he is the one who has come to save, that he is the one who has come to set us free, that he, is, he will live the life that we could not live on our behalf because we have all rebelled against God, that he would die to pay the penalty of our sin and rebellion, and that he will rise from the grave to defeat everything that is defeating us so that we, by his grace and his mercy, might place our faith in him who has done everything for us to have salvation. And Jesus is revealing this through the way that he speaks and also through his power. He's speaking with authority. And so he's been going around, as we've been seeing, speaking with authority. And that authority that he's speaking with is this authority that he is the power that he speaks, that he is the love that he talks about, that he is the grace and the mercy and the forgiveness. He's not appealing to some greater form of authority that he read or he learned from, but that he actually is the authority of everything that he speaks to be true. Then he reveals that, demonstrates it through his power by doing supernatural miracles. And the miracles are to support the teaching. What we need to know is that our circumstances changing will not save us. It will not calm the storm in our lives. But there's a raging storm going on in our hearts. And that it alone needs to be calmed if we are to live the life that we were created to live and desire to walk in. And that can only be done through faith in Jesus. Jesus by his work. And so his miracles are not the reason that we believe. He is God who has come to save us, and he reveals the reality of what saves us by his miraculous works. But he is teaching with authority. He is revealing himself in power. And Jesus is at the height of his popularity at this point on earth. There is some resistance, which we will see. Um, the religious leaders are resisting Christ because he's coming around and, and they're offended by what he is saying because the religious person wants to achieve something. They want to rise themselves out of the, the muck and the mire, pick themselves up by their bootstraps, so to speak, and become a good person and achieve a lot and accomplish religious activity. And they become self-righteous in that. And they believe that what they are doing is getting them closer to God. And, and that allows them to judge other people because that's the only way that you can actually tell if you're doing well or you're doing poorly. And when Jesus comes into the religious person and says, you can only have salvation in me and my work alone, then that's offensive. That's offensive. I'm saved by grace. It levels the playing field. I can't be better than you. I can't judge myself based on what you're doing. So the religious person is offensive. They want Jesus to come, the Messiah, and they believe that the God that they want and the God that they would make would come down and they would build them up for the good works that they have done. They would pat them on the back. And so it's offensive when Jesus says, no, you need me and my work. You can't be saved by your own work. For the irreligious person, they're also offended because... The irreligious person says, I believe that I get to make what is right and wrong, and, and I'm the only one that can determine who I am and what I want to be and what that looks like in my life. And when Jesus comes in and says, no, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one has salvation outside of me and my work and by my grace, then that's offensive. We have to count the cost. And for many of us, the foundation of our disbelief and our doubt, which if you are doubting this morning who Jesus is and what he actually came to do and what that means in your life, then I would encourage you to lean into that doubt. We often talk about doubt here as a poised foot. You can step forward and lean into it and discover truth and everything that you're looking for, or you can have this tendency to step away from every answer that you were created to know and understand in Christ alone. And so if you're doubting this morning, that's okay. Lean in. Ask God to reveal himself to you. 
But we have to count the offense of the gospel that Jesus actually comes, and regardless of who we are and what we've bought into and what we believe, until we understand who Jesus is, we are all, in effect, seeking our own way of salvation, building our own kingdoms, desiring to be our own kings. And it all falls short, and it never adds up to be everything that we desire it to be, long for it to be, thought it would be, every single bit of it falls. In Christ alone do we have our salvation. He is the only king that is eternal, and he is building and inviting us into his kingdom, which is everlasting, where all things will be made new, and he is working redemption into your life right now. But we have to understand these things in Christ, and we have to deal with the offense. We have to count the cost. So the religious leaders and the irreligious people, the political leaders, they're all counting that cost. They are offended. Now, the people are going to as well, the general public. But right now, Jesus is at the height of popularity. And just a few weeks we'll be getting into when Jesus, it becomes very, very clear that the road to the cross that he is marching on is becoming more and more clear and evident. But right now, the people want him to be king. He just fed 5,000 people with a few pieces of, of cracker and a few fish, five loaves and two fish. And they, they would be in this time kind of like a kid's lunch. It's like a snack pack, if you want to think of it that way. Um, you have little crackers that would be compressed. Um, that would be what the bread is. And then you'd have a few small fish, and you would eat the crackers and the fish together. And that was a little boy's lunch. And just as a complete side note, I love just thinking about the reality that as Jesus sends out the disciples to see what is there amongst the 5,000 men, and it could have been upwards of 15, 20, 25,000 total people, then he tells them to go and see what is there, and they bring this back, one boy's lunch. And I just love how everybody was in such a rush to go and see Jesus and the disciples if you remember a couple of chapters ago or at the beginning of chapter 6, Jesus sends the disciples out in his power, through the power of the Holy Spirit, to speak with authority and to perform miracles, to reveal that Jesus really is the Messiah. And all the 11, our 11 out of the 12 disciples are from the area Jesus sends them into. And, and so when he sends them out, he's sending them to their home place where they live and where they work and where they play. And he's sending them to talk to people that are familiar with them and they're familiar with those people. And so they know who the disciples are. So when they see Jesus and the disciples gathering together, we saw last week to go and rest. They don't get much rest because all of the people are like, there they are. There's the disciples. They're speaking in power. They're doing these miracles. There's Jesus. We've heard of Jesus and, and they've seen Jesus, many of them. And so they all crowd into this place next to or near uh, Bethsaida. And all of this multitude of people are there, and all of them are getting hungry. And the disciples are like many of us. They're like, hey, Jesus, you said we were coming for rest. It's getting late. I'm hungry. They got to be hungry, too. We're just being compassionate here, right? Uh, maybe you should send them away. Go get something to eat, right? Um, we've done enough today. Let's go and rest like you promised that we would. And Jesus looks at them because he continues to teach them who he is and what he's come to do. And the disciples are unsure maybe of where to start and what to do. And so we see these principles where Jesus says, you always begin where you are. And so they were right there in front of all of these people and there was a need. And then Jesus asked the second principle, what do you have? And so all of the disciples are going out and they're looking for what is there. And this is the only thing that they find. And I love this because the disciples had to have come back thinking to themselves, see Jesus, five loaves of bread, two fish, send them away. And Jesus says, no, have them sit down in banquet-style groups of 50 to 100. And we begin to see this parallel between the kingdom of the world, Herod, and the kingdom of Jesus. As Herod throws a party to satisfy his people, it falls short. It fails. It leads to haunting him. It leads to shame. It leads to guilt. It leads to falling short of everything that he desires in the power that he is seeking. But Jesus throws a banquet, and it completely satisfies all people. And there were 12 baskets left over, one for each of the disciples. And if you remember back in chapter 6, verse 8, Jesus sends the disciples out and he says, don't take anything with you because I will provide for you. 
And the disciples are still a little bit confused about this. They're struggling with this feeding of 5,000 people with five loaves and two fish. And so they come back with these 12 baskets. And the baskets would have been more like bags that you would carry, baskets that would go over your shoulder. And that's what people would travel with. And so each of the disciples has a basket full of food. And Jesus just continues to reveal, I will provide. I am in control. I am sovereign. Everything that I send you to do, I will provide for you to do. And it will be the thrill of life. And so they bring back these five loaves and two fish. And this one little boy has it. And I just said all of that that I shouldn't have said just to make this point. Um, And it's not even a good point. So I should have just moved past it. But I love this, and it just, I was thinking about it this week. One mom out of all of this crowd was annoying enough to make her son grab the lunch that she made before he went to go see Jesus and the disciples, and God used it in a powerful way. And I say that to say, just don't despise the small things. Do what is right and what is good, and God will use it in his power. But we see Jesus continue to reveal himself. And when we get to our text, we're going to see Jesus sends the disciples out into the the boat again. And he is going to go and pray. But this is what Jesus is revealing of himself, who he is and what he has come to do. And that he is truly the one that has come to change everything by his grace. But there are great storms around us, and we're going to see Jesus send the disciples into one to continue to teach them who he is. And we see seven incredible things that God does in the midst of the storm. Look with me. Chapter 6, starting in verse 45. Immediately, he, Jesus, made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. And so Bethsaida is probably only about two miles from the big field that it's believed that they were in. Really short boat ride. Um, Normally what you would do is stay very close to the shore. You would go a couple of miles down. It wouldn't take you very long to get there. And that's what the disciples are doing. So he dismisses the crowd, Jesus. He stays back to do that. And after he uh, had done that, he had taken leave uh, from them. He went up into the mountain to pray. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on the land. So Jesus is not with them, but he sent them into the sea. They're being obedient. Verse 48, and he saw that they were making headway painfully. We're going to see that that's actually a massive storm that has blown them way off the path. For wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea But then look at this. It seems contrary to him coming to save them, does it not? He meant to pass them by. But when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out. For they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them and the wind ceased and they were utterly astounded. For they did not understand about the loaves but their hearts were hardened. So we know that Jesus, by reading the end of this text, he wants to reveal something to the disciples. The disciples have not gotten it yet. They're already revealing who Jesus is. They're already working in his power. He is sending them out. They're coming back. He's hearing of all the things that they're doing. He's sending them back out. We will see again because the disciples are the ones who are going to continue the mission all the way down to us. And we continue the mission of revealing God because of who he is and what he has done for us. The identity that he gives to us allows us to live the life that we were created to live, and we desire to reveal that to everyone in all places, at all times, through all things. But the disciples need to understand who he really is, and they're struggling. Maybe like a lot of us struggle with that, and and maybe in the midst of storms and trials and sufferings, we struggle with that the most. And God is going to use that to actually reveal who he is. And so here's what we see. Jesus sends the disciples into the boat to go a little ways down to Bethsaida. And then he's going to send the people away. So here's Jesus. He's teaching. He's revealing. He's healing. And then he tells the disciples, all right, fine. Let's go and you can have some rest. When you go over a couple miles down to Bethsaida, I'll meet you there. You guys get in the boat, take off. The crowd will stay around me. I will dismiss them. And this is what Jesus does. 
And then after he dismisses the crowd, it says that he goes to pray for a while alone. He's going to end up praying all night. And I love this. I love how Jesus does this. And I want us to recognize this. See, Jesus in this moment, we see him going to pray alone a lot in his life. We, we get three instances where we get a little bit of insight into what he actually prays when he goes and prays alone. But I want us to understand that, that Jesus at this point, as we said, he knows what the political leaders think of him. He knows what they want him to do. They want him to step down. They want him to, to reveal that he does not have any authority over them. They, they, they want him to not come to be the Messiah, to have a kingdom, to, to sit on a throne, to reign and rule, to rise his people out of oppression. They want him to submit like everyone else submits. And if he does, life will be okay. And if he does, there won't be persecution politically from the Romans. Jesus knows what the political leaders want from him. Jesus also knows what the religious leaders want from him. They, they want for Jesus to celebrate them. They want for Jesus to, to, to say that you are doing better than, than all others. And, and how great are you? And how wonderful are your ways? And keep up the good work and you will save yourself. And they want to hear that they are the ones who are on the platform of society. And that everyone else should look up to them, act like them, listen to them. And that they are able to be and have the stamp of approval for self-righteousness. Jesus knows what they want, and if Jesus does this, then he will have it okay, and the religious leaders will not come against him, and they will not call him blasphemous, and he will not end up marching towards the cross under the political and religious rulers of the day. He also knows what the people want of him. The people, at the height of his popularity, they want him to be king. They want to put him on a throne. They want to lift him up. They want to give him power. They want to admire him. They want to worship him. But for all of the wrong reasons, they want him to lift them out of oppression. They want a revolution. They want him to arm them. They want to make armies. They want to go against their enemy. They want to be lifted up. And Jesus in this moment could say, this is what I am here for. And they would have carried him away from this town and these villages high and lifted up up and he could have been an earthly king. He could have had everything that we would believe naturally is everything that we're longing for, seeking, and desiring. He could have started the church right here at this moment, and it would have been at the height of his popularity where everybody would have said they believed and everybody would have said that they followed, but he did not come to build a kingdom that would rise and fall. He didn't come just to set us free physically, but there's something at the foundation of who we are that allows us to have freedom regardless of the circumstances of our lives, allows us to reveal that his kingdom is the ultimate kingdom. He is the ultimate king. And when we are with him for all of eternity, all things will be made new. And we get to reveal that kingdom in power in this world that is broken and in need of him, the Savior. And so he doesn't start the church at this point. But he knows what the people want. And it would be everything that we would desire naturally today. He knows what the political leaders want. He knows what the religious leaders want. He knows how to avoid persecution and to become king. Is that not what all of us would naturally want? He knows what the people want. But I love how we get to see Jesus. He's not as concerned with what the people want. He's concerned with the will of the Father. And here's a lesson, and here's something that we need to see. There will be lots of voices that speak into our lives. There will be cultural voices. There will be political voices. There will be religious voices. There will be our own hearts that are constantly desiring for us to fall into temporary pleasures over what is ultimately good, to not want to be stretched, to not want to be transformed, but to have comfort and to listen to our every desires and do whatever it is that keeps us from persecution and do whatever it is that lifts our kingdom up the most and best that it possibly can be. But if you do that, you will will fall. And it will never be what you think, think it will be. It will never be what you thought it would be. It will never satisfy you. There is one who is whose will you were created to walk in, and it is the Father's. And so I love how Jesus demonstrates to us what we need to be seekers of, 
that we need to seek the Father, that we need to be in his will, that we need to go to him in prayer, we need to be in his word and hear of his truth, we need to be in community and have accountability to walk in his way and his way alone, that we might understand what he desires from us, and then we might walk in the things that he has laid out for us to walk in. And so I love when Jesus knows and hears from all of the world around him what he should do. He goes to the Father to see what is best to do. And I would just encourage us to ask God about who he is and his plan and not just go to him with our plan and ask him to bless it, but go to him to say, what is your plan? And then to begin to walk in it in faith and not fear, with courage and not cowardice, with confidence and not timidity. And to trust that he is ultimately in control of all things and working all things to the good of those who love him. Seek God in all things. His will is what you long for. He makes it clear to us what he would have us to do. And if it's not here, he will make it clear to you what he would have you to do. And it will perfectly match what he calls us to in his word. Seek him as Jesus seeks him. So I love how Jesus demonstrates this to us. He goes to God in prayer, and what we're going to see is his prayer actually answered through what happens with the disciples, and then how he responds to what happens with the disciples. So the disciples are going to go through something very difficult. They're going to, no doubt, like many of us do, they're going to think to themselves, I'm doing what God told me to do. I'm walking in obedience to him. And I'm not feeling his grace, and I'm not feeling his presence, and I'm going through a storm, and I've got suffering. Where is Jesus? Why did he send us away with him, from him? Why is he not with us? Why is he not coming to save us? Why is he not snapping his fingers and getting us off of the sea? Why is he not stopping the waves and the wind? Where is his grace? And what we're going to see is that they are actually smack dab in the middle of his grace. And he's going to use the storm to reveal something and to take them into a joy and a truth that they never would have known if they had not gone through the storm. Jesus' prayer will be answered, and we'll get to more of that in just a moment. But I do believe, and I want you to know, and I believe that many of us in the room this morning need to hear this. Jesus is praying for them, and his prayer will be answered. And Jesus is praying for you, and his prayer will be answered. I said that we see three times when Jesus goes and, and prays, and we get a little bit of a snapshot of what he actually prays for. It happens three times in the New Testament. Every single time, he prays for his mission, and he prays for his people. His mission and his people. And so today, I want you to know that we can read throughout the New Testament, and, and one of the things, and the first thing that we need to know when we're going through storms of how God responds and how he reveals himself in our sufferings and our trials and our storms is that he is interceding for you, and his prayer will be answered. Hebrews chapter 7 says that he will ever be interceding for us at the right hand of the Father. Romans chapter 8, 34 to 39 says this, Who is it that condemns? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised and is at the right hand of the Father, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No, in all of these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor demons and rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And here's what I want you to know. The first thing that we need to know is he is interceding and his prayer will always be answered even when you do not feel that he is with you and he is, you believe that he has sent you, but he is nowhere to be found. He's interceding. I, I love how Robert Murray McShay, a Scottish minister in the early 1800s, said this of Jesus praying for him. He said, if I could hear Christ praying for me in the next room, 
I would not fear a million enemies. Yet because of who he is, distance makes no difference. He is praying for me. Great theologian and pastor John Knox, he found out that he was terminally ill. And on the day that he found out that he was terminally ill to the day that he died, he asked that John chapter 17 would be read over him. John chapter 17 is the high priestly prayer where Jesus prays and he reveals who he is and his mission. And then he prays that the disciples will be one with him as he is one with the father and one with one another to reveal that he is the savior. And then in verses 20 to 23, he prays for us that we would be one with the Father, and that we would reveal our oneness with our love for one another, that the world would know that he is God. And he wanted to hear these words, Jesus praying for him every single day. And it said that the last words that he heard were John chapter 17, Jesus praying for him. And, and so the best evidence that we have of Jesus going away and praying and what we would see in Mark chapter 6 is that he is praying for his mission. He's praying for his people, the disciples, as they're in the midst of a trial he sent them into. And all of us will go through trials and some of us because of our own sin and some of it's because sins of others. Some of it's because of the brokenness of the world and some of it is because God is allowing us to understand something beautiful. It's a grace to us. It's a grace of transformation. See, oftentimes we just think and, and salvation and grace is, is Jesus just saving us. It's nothing that we do. It's none of our power or our work. But, but oftentimes we just think that all of grace in life is just a soft pillow to lay our head on or a cool breeze on a hot summer day. But in reality, God's grace is what moves us towards him. It, it's tension. It's, it's stretching we often talk about how discipleship happens in tension. Growth happens in tension. And Jesus is revealing something to the disciples here. But it gets even better than this if we begin to understand what Jesus is actually doing as he intercedes. This is the best evidence we have throughout Scripture. But then we're told in the book of Acts that when Jesus ascends back into heaven, he will send the power of the Holy Spirit to live and dwell in the life of every believer. And then get this. Romans 8, 26 to 27 says this. The Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not even know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows that it is the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. So listen to me this morning. Your Savior loves you. He is for you. He is interceding for you in the midst of your struggle, in the midst of the storm. He knows that life is hard, and he knows what you need most, even when you don't know what you need and you think you do. He is interceding, and his prayer will be answered. This is the first thing that we need to know. And, and as we know that he is interceding, we need to know that he is in control. Whether we see him or not, whether we understand him or not, feel him or not, whether we want him to be or not, he is providentially working in all things. There is a great reason we see in our text that he sends the disciples on the boat and then he goes to pray and he is providentially working in it all. He is sovereign and he is in control. God's providence is this. This is how I would define it. God's providence is his power with perfect purpose. Plus, his perfect goodness equals everything you ultimately want in this life and the life to come, regardless of your circumstances. But we must know that what we really need and ultimately long for is often learned intention. Often grace is not what we would think it to be. But he is interceding, and he is for us, and he is in control. He is not ignorant of your struggle. He's not indifferent of your storm. He is not aloof in the midst of your pain. We may not always like the way that God acts and the way that God reveals himself. This was the foundation for everyone's disbelief. This is not the God that we would create. This is why the religious people were offended, why the people will be offended, why the political leaders were offended, because Jesus is coming in a way to save our souls. And we just wanted him to lift us up into an earthly kingdom. He doesn't always come the way that we would think he would. But he always does exactly what we need in his providential goodness. 
to produce joy in us. And this, again, is what the Bible calls grace. So Jesus is praying. His disciples are being obedient, but they are in trouble. We will face trouble. But Jesus is interceding, and I need you to know that right now. He's praying for you, and his prayer will be answered. The second thing that we need to see as Jesus responds here to this storm is not only that he is praying for us, but that he is watching over us. He's watching over the disciples. Verse 48, Jesus finishes praying, and he sees them struggling on the water in this great storm. Now, I said that we would look at this first just a second. They are in a big storm. Uh, John tells us in his gospel uh, about this miraculous event of Jesus walking on water, and he says that they were actually four miles off course. They were supposed to be right up against the shore, just going a couple of miles to Bethsaida, but now they find themselves four miles into the, the sea, into the lake, and all they can see are the wind and the waves. They are completely just rowing, and nothing is happening. They just continue to get farther and farther off the course that they believe that they need to be on, and they believe that is where Jesus is and where they need to be going. They are completely off course, and it's the fourth watch of the night. And here's what we need to understand about that. They have been rowing now what should have been a short little trip for some rest for six to nine hours just fighting the sea, just continuing to row, getting further and further. They are at a point of desperation. They're at a point of, of worry and fear and anxiety and just feeling completely out of control. Can you imagine just life? Think of it just as your life. I've got a direction. I know where I want to go. God, would you bless it? And then you start out on that path, and you're working, and you're working, and you're working, and you're working, and, and, and satisfaction and goodness and peace and rest just seem to get farther and farther and farther away. And nothing you do seems to accomplish anything. This is where the disciples are. But in the midst of that, not only is Jesus interceding for them, but he is watching over them. And I want us to see his perspective. He's up on a mountain watching over them. And so while the disciples can only see the wind and the waves and the circumstance that they are in, and it is totally causing them to freak out and feel like they will never get to where they desire to be, Jesus is able to see where they started. He's able to see where they are. And he's able to see where they are going. Listen, Jesus is always watching and aware and interceding. And he sees the beginning. He sees the now. And he sees where you're going. His perspective is far greater than ours. This is how we see everything that God does, everything that God allows in our lives and have an understanding or begin to have an understanding of why he might do so for a much greater purpose than what we feel in the moment when all we can see are the wind and the waves. His perspective is far greater and far truer than the perspective of the disciples who have a perspective that is very, very limited. So he is seeing it all. He is in complete control. He is interceding on their behalf. And then look at the third thing. It says, when they were exhausted in the fourth watch of the night, rowing for six to nine hours, all they can see are the wind and the waves. Here is what at the right time Jesus does in the storm. It says, not only did he pray, not only does he see, but he comes to save. See, Jesus at the right time comes to save. To save us at the deepest level that begins to transform how the disciples see all of life, how they understand who they are and how they understand who Jesus is and what he's come to do and what that means for them going from this point forward. It's far greater than them just being brought out of the storm. Jesus certainly could have done that with just a spoken word or the snap of his fingers. But he's going to do it a completely different way to reveal something of himself that we need to understand. But he does come to save at the deepest level, a level that transforms the storm in our hearts. 
not just our circumstances, that sets us free to know who we are and where we belong and what we were created to do, that allows us to walk in community with him. And this is the pattern of Jesus, by the way. As soon as sin and rebellion enters into the world, he he doesn't make a, a way for us to get to him because he knows that that's impossible, but he comes to us. This is the story of the Old Testament. This is what Jesus is revealing in the New Testament. There is nothing that you can do to get to him, but Jesus does come to save you. And he does it in this incredible way. It says that he came out walking on the water. There's a lot of things that we can kind of glean from that. We don't have time this morning, but there's a couple of things that I want us to see. One of the major ones is that Jesus, he never, he never makes us come to him. He walks out on the water. He doesn't just stand by the shore. He doesn't just yell out to the disciples, hey, I'm over here. It's nice over here. Work a little bit harder. Row a little bit harder. You're doing a good job. Keep it up. Row. Row. Like he's not cheering them on. He's not saying, hey, if you get close enough, I'll throw you a rope. He walks out to them. Jesus comes to us. And Jesus reveals himself in the storm in this powerful, powerful way. They're exhausted, they're desperate, and Jesus comes to them by walking on the water. But he's the one that always comes to us. He doesn't expect you to save yourself. He doesn't expect you to get yourself out of the storm that you're in. He doesn't expect you to try harder to do better. He is the one that comes to save. The fourth thing that we need to see in this text and grasp of what God does to reveal himself in the middle of the storm is what we see here that should be an obvious thing given everything that we said. But the fourth thing that we see is that Jesus is our greatest need in the storm. There's nothing else that could save them. And he reveals himself in a way that reveals that he has come to do more than just save us, as we said, but he has come to have relationship and community with us, to bring us back into right standing with God, to allow us to walk in freedom, to have salvation in him alone, and to have community with him so that we might know who we are and how to live. And it's interesting that Jesus walks on water. And we might just think to ourselves, man, what a cool thing to do. That's like a really cool miracle. Like Jesus just kind of walked on the water. But then it says something contradictory, right, while he's walking on the water to what we would see or think of if Jesus is walking out on the water to save them and come to save, coming to save them, to bring them out of the storm that they are in. And it says that they meant to pass him by. Like, what? Like, Jesus is coming to them walking on the water, but he means to pass them by. So what in the world is he doing? Well, walking on water is not just a cool miracle. Jesus is actually revealing himself and who he is and what he's come to do in the midst of how he is answering the prayer for them of how he was interceding for them to understand the will of the Father and who he is and what he's come to do and what that means for them on their mission. And so if we are familiar with the Old Testament or do a little bit of an Old Testament study, what we find is in Job chapter 9, verse 8, Job tells us that God alone is able to scale our walk on the water. Psalm 77 tells us that God alone is the one who can walk upon the water. You'll find handfuls of verses throughout the Old Testament reflecting that God alone is the one who can walk on the water, who can control the sea. And so he's actually revealing himself through what he is doing. Now, the disciples, this should have been a hint to them, but, but how many of, of us are like them when we're in the midst of the storm and all we can see are the wind and the waves? Like we miss a whole bunch of signs of different things. Like we're just really caught up on what's going on. And so they think that he's a ghost. They're, they're not thinking, oh, yeah, in Job, in Psalms, all these other texts. So that's probably Jesus, and he's probably God. What they're thinking to themselves is, that's not the way we believe God would save us. That's probably not what they're praying for God to do. God, would you just, like, bring us out of this? Like, just stop the wind and the waves? Just pull us up out of it? Don't, you don't need to show yourself or reveal yourself, whatever. Just get us out of this storm. That's often what we want and how we pray. 
But a lot of times Jesus will reveal himself, God will reveal himself in a way that we would not think that he would. And it might cause us to miss what he's doing. So they believe that he's a ghost and Jesus is going to walk on by them in the boat. Now Jesus is actually doing something really important here. And when they cry out to him, he is going to answer them. But he means to walk by. And if we do a little bit of an Old Testament study again, then what we'll see is this is actually one of the ways that God reveals himself in the Old Testament. If you look in the book of Exodus, Moses asked for God to reveal his glory to him. And God says, I cannot reveal my glory to you. You cannot see my face. You will surely die. But I will hide you in the cleft of a rock, and I will pass by. And the language there says that you will be able to see where I have passed by. And that will be the most of the glory that you can see. But it's how God reveals himself. He does this in 1 Kings with Elijah. He passes by Elijah. Elijah is not able to see the glory of God. And so Jesus is walking on water, a thing that only God can do. He's going to walk by them to reveal that you cannot see the glory of God, though I am manifested in the life of humanity because I have come to live for you and to die for you and to rise to defeat sin and death. But I am God, and I am walking by to reveal myself to you you. I am walking on water to reveal who I am to you. And then he does it verbally. The disciples call out to him and he says, do not fear the number one command in all of scripture. And then he says, do not fear for it is I. And what he's actually saying there, if we translate it from the Hebrew to the Greek, is I am that I am. This is how God revealed himself to Moses through the burning bush. I am what I am. I am the I am. I am the beginning and the end. I am the God who can save you. I am the God who shows compassion to you. I am the God who brings healing to you. I am who I am. I am the one that you are searching for. I'm everything that you need. I'm the Messiah who has come to set you free. Jesus is revealing himself to the disciples in the midst of the storm in a way that he can only reveal himself in the midst of this storm. In other words, what God is saying is don't fear because God is here and you can have faith. I'm revealing my glory to you. Don't fear, believe. And I alone will do what's best for you. I alone will protect you. I alone will comfort you. I alone will provide for you. With me, no matter what you go through, you are safe. And right here, I think the disciples begin to understand this in a really beautiful way. Now, they're still going to be confused. But in this text, if we look at Matthew, and I'll I'll, I'll go through the, the remainder of these points really quickly. But if we look at Matthew... We actually see that this is where Peter steps out of the boat. Now, Mark doesn't tell us this point, but I want to bring in a point of how God reveals himself in the midst of the storm through the life of Peter. Peter steps out of the boat, and he begins to walk towards Jesus. He says, if you are the I am, then call me out of the boat to walk to you. And Jesus says, come to me. And when Peter gets out of the boat, as long as he keeps his eyes on Jesus, as long as his focus is Jesus, then he is able to walk across the water. And, and let, me just, let me just submit to you, that was the most thrilling moment of Peter's life. I don't care what else happened, that right there was the greatest moment. He probably wished he could have that feeling and was scared to death of that feeling for the rest of his life. But as long as he kept his eyes on Jesus, he experienced the thrill of why he was created. But as soon as he took his eyes off of Jesus, he begins to sink. Here's the fifth thing that I want us to see in this text of how God reveals himself in the middle of the storm. We are to keep our eyes on Jesus in all of life. And when we do, we experience the greatest thrill of what we were created to be and to do. But if our eyes come off of him, 
If we're not in his word, if we're not in prayer, if we're not in community, if we're not seeking him, if our eyes come off of him and they begin to look at the circumstances, the wind and the waves and and the kingdoms that we build and the jobs that we do, and we begin to put things over him as our saviors, then we will begin to sink. They will fail us. Now, the beauty of it is, as soon as Peter begins to sink, he just cries out, Lord, save me. And listen, if you've walked away from God or if you have never given your life to God, that is all that is required. And Jesus reaches down. He doesn't just snap his fingers and put Peter back in the boat, but he shows his heart for us and the relationship he desires to have. And he reaches down and pulls Peter up. And they get in the boat together, and it says that all of the wind and the waves ceased. Everything stopped. And then look at the fifth thing. The fifth thing that we see is Jesus is actually leading us in the storm. It says that they were then on the dry land. Now, they were not where they desired to go. They weren't where they thought they were going to go. But, but Jesus is actually revealing himself, and he is leading us in the path and in the direction, in the midst of the storm. He is in control. He's interceding. He's watching over. He's coming to save. He is for us, and he is with us, and, and he is leading us in the midst of the storm. We see that Jesus takes them over to the other side, and it wasn't where they thought they were going to go. It wasn't their plan. It wasn't where they thought that Jesus was going to take them. But it was exactly where they needed to be. It was exactly what they needed to understand of Jesus. And so as they were immediately on the other side of the shore, we see the final thing, verses 53 to 56. The truth of Jesus in life through this text in the middle of our storm. He isn't just for you and your storms. But he actually uses how he reveals himself to you in the middle of your storms to reveal himself to others in the midst of theirs. They cross over and immediately people come to them with great need and they have compassion on them. And Jesus begins to heal and begins to reveal himself. And this is the mission that we are on. Jesus, in the midst of our storms, is interceding for you. He is watching over you. He has come to save you. He is your greatest need in all of life. Keep your eyes on him and you'll experience the thrill of life. Jesus is leading you in all things. You do not have to wonder where to go. And he is not just calming your storm, but he is working through you to reveal himself to others in the midst of theirs. How beautiful is the gospel of our King.